Greetings and welcome to a podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century pastor and preacher gifted by God to hold up and to hold out our Lord Jesus Christ as the only saviour of sinners. And it's that gift which we appreciate and it's that Christ about whom we wanted to know. And so we are studying the sermons of Charles Spurgeon as he handles the word of God faithfully and fruitfully to bring Christ before our eyes. Each week we read through seven sermons from his collected sermons, the New Park Street pulpit and then the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. This week we're reading sermons 192 through to 198. If you want to follow us, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon or you can go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts. That's mediagratii.org slash podcasts. Click on the link for the From the Heart of Spurgeon podcast and you can sign up to a weekly newsletter where you'll find not only the daily sermons, if you'd like to follow along with those, but also the specific Sermon of the Week where we try and focus in on a representative sermon that really gives us a, a grip on the Uh, the tenor of the ministry of this man as he holds up Christ and calls God's people to serve him walking in his ways. And so this week we're in number 198, a sermon entitled The Heavenly Race, which was preached on a Friday afternoon, the 11th of June 1858, from the grandstand at the Epsom Racecourse. Now, uh, that might not mean a great deal to you, but the Epsom Racecourse is a fairly well-known racetrack for horses here in the UK and the text is so run that ye may obtain 1 Corinthians 9:24 Now clearly Spurgeon is not above using that kind of environment first of all as a venue in which he can proclaim the truth to multitudes of people but also what you might call situational preaching taking advantage of the circumstances in order to grip the the mind and the heart of the people that he's preaching to. And so, standing in a race course, he's going to preach about running. And as he begins, he wants us to remember that he, above all, he might say, would have insisted that salvation is not of works, but of grace. It is not of works, lest any man should boast, and it is by grace that we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, but rather the gift of God. And yet Spurgeon is not just a balanced preacher, but a biblical preacher. He's going to give full weight to every truth of God's word as much as God helps him to do so. And so he says it's equally necessary for him to preach the absolute necessity of a religious life for the attainment of heaven at last. And there's no contradiction between those two statements. First of all, that salvation is all of grace and it is not of works. And secondly, that that gracious salvation requires a religious life for the attainment of heaven at last. A gracious man, a man in whom God is at work, will be a running man. And we must run a race. We must wrestle, he says, even to agony. We must fight a battle before we can inherit the crown of life. 
the pilgrim life to which our Lord God calls us, the life which we enjoy in Jesus Christ is a life of striving after godliness. And we don't just make a, an empty profession of religion, but we need the reality of it. And so Spurgeon says, if you're a Christian, you're a runner. If you're a Christian, you are to run to obtain. And so he wants to, from that very brief phrase, to ask the questions, what are we to run for? Then what is the mode of running? And then some practical exhortations. So what it is we are to run for, then the mode of our running, and then some practical exhortations or encouragements to stir those onward in the heavenly race who are flagging and negligent in order that they may indeed obtain at the end. So then, in the first place, what is it that we ought to seek to obtain? He's really asking the question here, why do you want to be in any way religious? For what reason do you attend a a religious service? Why do you go to church? Uh, what is your purpose as you seek after these things? What's your ultimate goal or destination? What do we want to obtain at the end? And he talks about some of the motives that some people may have in running in the religious route. Some people, he says, think they need to be religious in order to be respectable. It's just part of uh, a social image that we like to project so that people think of us in, in, a, in a fairly uh, positive light. But just to be thought of as respectable, just to perform for the sake of one's neighbours, he says, is the sign of a fawning, cringing spirit when people are merely seeking to do that which renders them respectable. If all you're concerned about is the esteem or applause of men, then that's a sad thing in itself and it's a poor religion which you have which only carries you so far. But some people, he says, go a little further than that. They're not just content with being respectable, but they want to be considered preeminently saints. They, they want to be known as having the Christian name. Now, they don't want to be thought of as sinners, certainly, but they do want what belongs to the religious status and the, the pretension that they get from being part of of a church of Jesus Christ. Their reward consists in being applauded as Christians. Other people take up with religion for what they can get by it. They think that there's something valuable. Loaves and fishes, he says, drew some of Christ's followers, and they're very attracting baits even to this day. Some people uh, want to be a part of the church or at least the church community because they uh, perhaps think they'll they'll get some food or some friendship, some uh, social interaction. People come simply because they're lonely or perhaps they think that they can get some business by coming in and pretending to be one of God's people. But they're, they're really doing it for what they can get out of it. No real thought of what they might put in into it in serving Christ and loving his people. Then some people are religious just to keep their conscience quiet. They think that uh, by doing church or by uh, being a little bit more spiritual that they can keep the guilt and the shame of their heart down. 
A guilty conscience, says Spurgeon, is one of the curses of the world. It puts out the sun and takes away the brightness from the moonbeam. It robs everything that we see of beauty. We don't need to be accused from without. We're constantly accused from within. And then religion can seem very attractive simply as a way of making our conscience a little easier without really dealing with sin. It's a, it's a, a salve on the sting. It's a, a temporary fix rather than a deep-rooted cure. So, says Spurgeon, such things as those are no good reasons to be running for anything. And if you think that that's the point, if you think that that's what you're after, then you're on a hiding to nothing. But positively, for what are we running in this race? Why, he says, it's heaven, eternal life, justification by faith, the pardon of sin, acceptance in the beloved and glory everlasting. If you run for anything else than salvation, even if you win, what you've won is not worth running for. And so you need to be running for the right target, running for the right goal, seeking after the right things. And if it's anything other than Christ and the salvation that comes in and with and from him, then you are going to miss that which is of first and vital significance. Christ himself set the joy of salvation before himself, and then he ran in despising the cross and enduring the shame. And that's precisely what we ought to be doing. And so he's already probing away at our souls. He's already probing away at our conscience. Why do we do what we do? Why do we want to be among God's people? Why do we want to be a part of a, a church of Jesus Christ? Is it ultimately just to keep the conscience quiet? Is it simply to get something out of it, some social or financial benefit? Is it because we like the idea of being respectable? Perhaps that still counts for something in the place where we live. Or do we really like the idea of being considered a good Christian person? Spurgeon says, if that's as far as your expectations go, then you're not running for anything worth having. You need to be running in order that you may lay hold upon salvation in all its fullness now and forever. And he says you need to run in such a way that you will obtain. You need to run in such a way that you will obtain. And he's going to take notice of certain people who never will obtain and he'll tell them why. And in so doing, he wants to illustrate what he calls the rules of the race. The rules of the race. And here then, if you like, are the, the rules of Christian running. He says some people will never obtain the prize because they're not even entered. They haven't put their names down for the race. And he says that there'll be people who will be listening to him there at the race course this afternoon who will themselves tell you, well, we make no profession of Christ, sir. We, we're not interested in that, none whatsoever. Nothing to do with us. We've got no concern for Christ. We've got no fear of God. We've got no love for the Saviour. We've got no hope of heaven. We're just not bothered. And you cannot expect to win heaven unless your names are entered for the race. If there's no regard for Christ whatsoever, no concern for the uh, one standing before God, then you will never obtain salvation. But others uh, have their names down, but they never started right. 
They, they never got off to the right start. They're not beginning at the right point. They're, they're thinking that they can perhaps come into the kingdom of God without any sense of uh, sin, without any sense of sin then forgiven, without any uh, conviction of their need of a saviour, without any uh, concern for their souls. Now, he's not prescribing a certain measure of that, but he's saying you need the root of the matter, not just the appearance of the flower and the leaf. And if someone comes and says they are a Christian without having begun at the right point, coming to the Lord Jesus Christ as a needy sinner and trusting in him alone for salvation, then they're missing the mark. Again, there are some who run in the heavenly race who cannot win because they carry too much weight. And here he's talking about the weight of the world, the cares and the pleasures of the world. They're so burdened that they cannot win unless God gives a mighty mass of strength to enable you to bear it. He's talking about people who are so taken up with the business of this life that they've got little time for private devotion. Uh, they don't pray much because business begins early. No prayer at night because business keeps them late. No time for family devotion. No time for investment in the church. They're entirely taken up with, with what this world demands or offers. And says Spurgeon, if you carry the weight of this world's cares about you like that, it will be as much as you can do to carry them and to stand upright under them, let alone running a race with such burdens. It will be impossible. And so he's talking now about people who perhaps are Christians. And he's saying you need to ask whether or not you're too much burdened by the things of this world. You've got too tangled up in the stuff of this life. He says something else too, that we've known people who've stopped along the way to kick their fellow runners. Some things sometimes occur, such things sometimes occur in a race. The horse, instead of speeding to the mark, is of an angry disposition and kicks those running beside him. And he says that's exactly the same sort of thing that happens to too many people. Every day in the week, he says, I meet with others who are attending to the character of other people. They're always looking at others and they're always ready to, uh, to attack them, to identify them, to undermine them, to expose them. They're very, very clear about what's wrong with other people, but they don't really have any sense of their own need. They're too distracted by what they think the people around them require and not concerned for what they themselves truly need. These are the people, and perhaps we're inclined to this spirit, who when they hear the preaching, think that Mr. So-and-so really needed to hear that, or that they come out and they stand at, the, at the, the door of the chapel, perhaps, and they talk to the pastor or the preacher on the day, and they say, oh, so good, you know, we so needed to hear those things. And uh, perhaps if you're that pastor or preacher, you think, yeah, you, you may well mean that everybody else needed to hear those things. It's, it's the, the sense that you're constantly patting yourself on the back, but you're ready to, to hit anybody else who you think isn't coming up to your standards. And if you're taken up with the, the expectations that you have for others, if you don't start at home, then you're not going to run to the end of the race and actually obtain 
Another class of persons who won't win the race is those who may start quickly, but soon loiter. They slow down. They, They start to dawdle. This race of persons, he says, is to be discovered in all our churches. He describes the young people who come forward and make a profession of religion, and we talk with them, and we think it is all well with them. And for a little while, they do run well. There's nothing wanting in them, and we could hold them up as patterns for the imitation of others. So he's confessing here that in his own experience, he's not uh, an absolute it doesn't have an absolutely a golden principle here by which he can determine that which is true and that which is false. That it's possible that even a good and faithful church will be mistaken by somebody who looks like they're running well. But he says you wait a couple of years and they drop off just by little and little. First, perhaps, there's the attendance on a weekday service neglected. Then it goes altogether. Then they only turn up once at church on Sunday. And then perhaps family prayer goes and and then private devotion. It's one thing after another. It's not a sudden turning away, but by degrees a, a drifting off from the things that are important in the life of a believer until at last the whole edifice, the whole construction, which stood upright and looked so fair, having been built upon the sand, gives way before the shock of time and down it falls and great is its ruin. Recollect, he says, it's not starting that wins the race, but running all the way. He that would be saved must hold on to the end. And I think most of us who've been in churches for any length of time will have seen and mourned over these kinds of departures. But it's also a a check for us. It's a, a, a way to ask myself even now, what is my public and private pattern of devotion? Am I at all the meetings of the church that I can be? Am I committed to the fellowship of the saints and to communion with God? Am I invested publicly and privately and in my family in acts of devotion and an embrace of what we call the means of grace? Or have I begun this step-by-step drifting away, this moving back, this uh, dropping off of one thing after another? But there's another class of persons, and they're worse than these. They're the ones who run very fast, perhaps, at first, having started well, but at last they leap over the posts and rails and they go quite out of the course altogether, and you don't know where they have gone. These are the people who looked like they were true Christians, perhaps to begin with. They were full of... uh, buoyancy and fervour and they gave every impression of being up and doing for the Lord Jesus Christ. But the good work was never truly begun in them and so they leave the course. When God is at work in the heart, says Spurgeon, that never happens. But those who come in on their own account, not called in by the Holy Spirit, they will eventually return to their own filth. They'll be like the dog going back to its vomit, the sow that was washed to wallowing in the mire. And the last end of that man shall be worse than the first. So, says Spurgeon, I'm bringing before you the rules of the race. If you want to win, you need to run in order that you may obtain. You need to run in a certain way. And now the positives then that are counterpoints to those warnings. Start well. 
Keep to the course. Keep straight on. Do not stop on the road. Do not turn aside from it. But urged on by divine grace, fly ever onwards like an arrow from the bow shot by an archer strong. And never rest until the march is ended and you are made pillars in the house of your God to go out no more forever. It's a very thoughtful and quite a striking way of asking whether or not we're running as we ought to. By setting up these contrasts and counterpoints, Spurgeon is making us ask, am I like that? Am I in any degree like that? And if I am then, I need to turn away from that and come back and run, not in that fashion, but in the way that God himself is pleased to direct us and encourage us and sustain us in doing. And then some reasons to urge us onward in the heavenly race. If we are running, if we're running so as to obtain this salvation, and if we're running God helping us in something of the way that we should, then we're going to need encouragements. We're going to need motivation. We're going to need uh, helps along the way. And Spurgeon says, one of my reasons is this. We are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, you may say, well, there's various ways of interpreting that. There's uh, different uh, ways of understanding this cloud of witnesses and who they are and what they really see. And he says, yep, that, that's, I don't think we, we need to deny that. But Spurgeon's using the, the general idea here. And he says that there are people who will be watching you as you run. He's suggesting that it does include the angels looking down on you. He says it will include the saints who are looking down on you. But he also wants to remind you that the whole world is looking upon you. Now, whether or not you want to take one or two or three of those, the point is that there is this eye, the set of eyes that is upon you. And not least in the world, in a Christian, every fault is seen that a worldly man may commit a thousand faults and nobody notices him, but let a Christian do so and he will very soon have his faults published to the wide world. And so we need to understand that we are before the eyes of men and of angels and that some of those who watch us, there's the enemy who is watching and he is against us. And so we ought to run conscious of the fact that we have this testimony to bear before the, the world seen and unseen. But he says there's a more urgent consideration still. You need to remember that this is a race you either win or lose. There's, in that sense, there's no first and second and third. It's either death or life. It's either hell or heaven. It's either eternal misery or everlasting joy. That's what's at stake in running this race. Oh man, says the preacher, hell is behind thee. Sin pursues thee. Evil seeks to overtake thee. The city of refuge has its gates wide open. I beseech thee, rest not till thou canst say with confidence, I have entered into this rest and now I am secure. I know that my Redeemer lives. Spurgeon's telling us you cannot afford to be in the wrong race. You cannot afford not to finish this race. It is win or lose. It's an absolute 
outcome. You either go to hell or you go to heaven. It's either misery eternal or joy everlasting. And that means that you must run in order to obtain the right price. And then one last thing. Remember who it is that stands at the winning post. Run onward, always looking unto Jesus. And really, by telling us this, Spurgeon is telling us that ultimately, really, that's, that's why we began. We came in looking unto Jesus. We're to run looking unto Jesus. The, the very goal for which we strive is that we may obtain Jesus Christ, that we may lay hold of that for which he has laid hold upon us, that we both have him and desire him. And every time we're tempted to turn aside or to become distracted or to leave the course or to slow down or to kick at our fellows, Spurgeon wants you to see the Christ with his bleeding hands that you may be constrained to devote yourself to him, to help you to run on with all speed. Your dying master, he says, cries to you today and says, by my agony and bloody sweat, by my cross and passion onward, by my life which I gave for you, by the death which I endured for your sake onward. And he holds out his hand, laden with a crown, sparkling with many a star, and says, by this crown onward, I beseech you onward, my beloved, press forward. You see, here is the preacher's Christ-centeredness. Here is his delight in the Lord Jesus. This is, for Spurgeon, the great motive in all Christian living and serving, that it is Christ that we serve, that it is he himself who stands at the end, that it is his well done that inspires us in all our serving. And Spurgeon's closing application then is very short and straightforward. He says, I've spoken to all kinds of characters. Will you simply this afternoon take that home to yourself, which is the most applicable to your case? Trusting in the Spirit of God to work in the hearts of these men and women who are standing at Epsom Racecourse and who've heard about what it means to run in order to obtain a worthwhile prize. He says, you've heard the various states and conditions that I've described. What is true of you? He warns them that you may now well be sailing over the smooth waters of life, but the rough billows of Jordan, he's referring there to the realities of death, that will make you want a saviour. It's hard work to die without a hope. To take that last leap in the dark is a frightful thing indeed. Oh, but to go and be with Jesus Christ, there is joy and peace and hope and happiness everlasting. And that's held out to all. For God abundantly pardons those who are coming to him through Christ Jesus. And so he closes the whole with a prayer. O Lord, turn us and we shall be turned. Draw us and we will run after you and yours shall be the glory. For the crown of our race shall be cast at your feet and you shall have the glory forever and ever. What a wonderful a portrait we have here of the, the race of faith. The, uh, the situation that Spurgeon uses to, to make sure that the realities of this heavenly race are held before the eyes of the men and women to whom he preaches and therefore pressing home in this vivid and lively language 
the, uh, the, the need that we each one have to make sure that we've begun the real race, that we run it well and that we run it conscious of the witnesses around us, conscious of what is at stake and therefore fixing our eyes upon our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Well, may God help us to run that race indeed. Bring us in, keep us on and watch over us until the end. Thank you for listening and if you'd like to join us again, next week we'll be reading sermons 199 to 205 and our selection is sermon 201. So please do join us on that occasion if you're able to in order to read a sermon on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Thank you once again. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.